Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues involved with and impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture. Got a great show for you today. County agent, past, present, and will there be a future? You know, recently I spoke to the NACAA, that's the National Association of County Agricultural Agents. If you are an ag person, a farm person, and certainly if you are uh, my age and older, there's a, a memory that you have about the county agent. They may have worked out of an office in the courthouse. They came out and checked on your farming operation. They brought you and dispensed information from the land-grant university in your state. That was their role. I have with me three of my audience members uh, that were uh, in the audience that I just spoke to, and I've gotten to know a couple of these because five years ago they had me speak at their conference in Mobile, Alabama. These are three county agents that work in three different states, and they're here to talk about the past, present, and what the future looks like for the county agent and what cooperative extension that means that means the idea of extending the knowledge and information from the land-grant universities to the rural and agricultural sector we're going to talk about what that looks like so i'm welcoming wonderful guests paula burke henry duro and stan moore welcome to the business of agriculture podcast thanks for having us damien all right henry you yes, were my sir. client five years ago before I asked you. Stan, say hello to everybody. Hello. Okay. Uh, Stan Moore is a county agent up in the northern part of the, of the lower peninsula of Michigan near Traverse City. Uh, tell me the county exactly. I'm actually in Antrim County is where I'm based out of. Okay. And then Henry Duro hired me five years ago for the 100th anniversary of the NACAA conference when they met in Alabama. He himself is an Alabaman and an Auburn person. Uh, Henry, where are you in Alabama? Talent. Uh, Talladega County. Wait a minute. Something else happens in Talladega, doesn't it? Yeah. What is it? A couple days a year, people like to drive in left-hand circles. Okay. And then you uh, you also have our friend here, Paula. Paula Burke, you're originally from upstate New York. Now you reside in Alabama, but you work in Georgia, right? Yes. I work in Carroll County, Georgia. Okay. And and you, have, you are the youngest of the group, I can tell, right? Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> How long have you been doing this? Uh, 26 years. And then you are a Cornell person? Originally, I was in upstate New York in um, Saratoga Springs area and worked for Cornell Cooperative Extension for 19 years. And then about seven years ago, um, I moved down south, live in Alabama, but currently work for the University of Georgia in Carroll County. Okay, let's give a little history. Uh, Whoever is going to be best over here, Henry or Stan, give me a little history because the person listening that says, I know about these county agents, but I'm not sure I knew all this history. All right, start with the Morrill Act. It's important to agricultural development. It's important to agricultural history. It's important to the United States history. What the Morrill Act did that happened in 1862, setting up the land-grant universities, had a tremendous amount to do with the success and the development of the United States of America. Take it from there. Absolutely. So dating back all the way actually to 1857, uh, John Morrill tried to pass this Morrill Act, and it failed. And in 1859, it passed the legislature, but uh, President Buchanan actually vetoed the bill. Um, and then 1862, um, another part of it, getting it through, was that, you know, southern states especially were about, all about states' rights, and they did not like a centralized government process of uh, dictating what they can do, can and cannot do, state-owned anything. So 1862 came around, and uh, obviously the southern states were no longer a part of the U.S. because they had seceded from the Union. Uh, Civil War was going on. Well, the Morrell Act passed then. 
And basically what it did is it gave each state 30,000 acres of land, and they told the state, said, okay, and it was per legislator, I think, per member of the legislation, 30,000 acres of land. And they told them, said, okay, you can take this land, and you can do whatever you want to with it. You can build what you want on it, or you can sell it, you can sell the timber off of it, but you have to use the money and the proceeds from that to start a, a, a college for agriculture and mechanical arts. And along with that, it also had a military science component, which is the, the ROTC of today. <clears throat> so that started in 1862. Uh, Iowa State University is the very first land-grant college in the state of the— in, Okay, stands the screen. Michigan State University. Uh, I forget what they're— There's what they're an position. argument. Who's first? There's an argument. Okay. <clears throat> well, we weren't first in Alabama, I promise you that, because we weren't part of the country. Right. So uh, after the Civil War, the land-grant status was uh, uh, awarded to all the southern states, and then uh, universities like Auburn University, University of Georgia, those became established. Um, as land-grant colleges, the purpose, again, was to, to teach agriculture— mechanical arts and military science all the colleges up to that point were liberal arts schools and uh and only the affluent could go so the the youngsters out on the farms working out in the rural areas or outside the city uh, in the suburbs they couldn't afford to go to school and not, nonetheless they couldn't learn something they could bring back home uh, and use on the farm yeah so i've pointed out my sister actually went to indiana university and she uh, which is not a land-grant school and i of course went to purdue along with four of my other siblings and i was explaining this to her sitting on my pier drinking a beer uh, a couple of months ago and she didn't really understand the land-grant uh, system she didn't know about the morale act and then i explained to her i said when you think about the brilliance and the long-term uh, positive effect you're teaching people uh, up until then it was wealthy people went to college and learned how to read literature and uh, the fine arts. That doesn't get a railroad built across Nebraska. That doesn't get uh, a barge handling uh, built on the Mississippi River. The reason we became economically dominant was because of the expansion of our uh, country through infrastructure and through agriculture, and that's what the land-grant system was all about. So, Stan, pick up where Henry left off because you haven't been able to talk, and ever since he said that Michigan State wasn't the first land-grant school, you were chomping at the bit. Well, yeah, there's, there's an ongoing argument of who was first, and that it really doesn't matter a lot. But Michigan State been 170 years yeah michigan state definitely got in there right away and uh and started in the land grant system and of course important to all of us is is the smith lever act then that eventually came in 1914 and was able to establish the cooperative extension system and there was a few extension educators around before that but it really solidified contributed you know money to that cause yeah so to, to give a little started. background here the land grant system then said we're going to democratize agriculture and i was a speaker at the uh idaho grower shippers association conference years ago and at my table was the president of university of idaho which is one of the land grant schools and he was so excited to find that i was a purdue guy and that i knew the history of the land grant system and then he said well what it did was it democratized agriculture it made it so that the kid from rural alabama could go to Auburn and the kid from rural in North in upper New York could go to Cornell, you know, uh, or the kid from the upper peninsula, or I'm sorry, nobody from the upper peninsula even goes to college. Let's face it. Right. I mean, they, they, oh, nobody, even li- nobody even lives. You're there, getting right? in trouble with uh, the UPers. <laughs> okay. So the then you fast forward, that was the 1860s. And then we did a great thing to maybe help heal some of the scars of the civil war in 1890. We admitted the historically black colleges and That's gave them correct. land grant status. Yep. And then the 1990s did the same thing with the nation the native American colleges. Yep. So it's a good program and it's done a lot for the expansion of our country, but bringing it forward to the Smith lever, 
overact quickly. By the way, we haven't heard from Paula for a minute. Paula, give me some scoop. On the Smith-Lever Act? Whatever. <laughs> I'm not a very good historian on that, so probably the, the gentlemen's are probably a little bit better on that history. They're a little bit older than me, of course, although they're yeah. history. Henry's the best historian of us all, right, so, all, the, the so you might be able to fill in The there. Smith-Lever Act happened uh, 105 years ago in 1914, and the idea there was we've got these colleges now, and they're doing well, and they're teaching people about how to build a railroad, how to engineer a building, how to grow a crop, how to feed America, a growing and hungry nation. Now we still have these folks that are in rural areas that are pretty poorly served. Information is, is tough to get out there. We don't have the internet. And a lot of the people that are operating the farms at the time, and I'm not being offensive, it's just a true factual piece of history, were not as well educated. They didn't, live, they didn't live in a place where they could get great schooling. So the idea was, let's extend the knowledge from the colleges out into and to disperse that information to the farms. That's what the Smith-Lever Act was about. Go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in those uh, early years and even into today, we still recognize the importance of not only education directly to our producers, but also through our youth. So it brought along the whole youth education as well through our 4-H program. So affecting change on the farm, both through the youth, youth and through the adults. And, yeah, education was uh, was pretty hard to come by for a lot of farm kids uh, growing up um in uh, Michigan and now moving up into northern lower Michigan where we have lots of snow as we talked about earlier um, you got to winter time that's school time uh, the boys may or may have not have gotten to school oftentimes the daughters were farmed out to kids and or parents in town so that they could get to school or families in town and the boys and stayed the, home the boys to do could, the farming and, could, and move snow yeah, and, and occasionally would be able to take the sled to get into town so yeah education was definitely at a premium for those for those kids so being able to invest in getting educators out into each county uh, to be able to actually work with producers with kids on those farms was important to so that education. the kind of work that was done back then 105 years ago the idea is we've got these universities someplace in you know university of nebraska is teaching uh, is learning and doing plant pathology and, and learning how to grow a better crop but we still got these people that are out here in the hinterlands of nebraska that uh could do a better job so the idea was they hire someone so you are hired mm-hmm. who employs you paula so actually, uh, the University of Georgia employs me, but then also my county in Carroll County. Um, so we actually, and it varies from state to state, but ultimately there's federal funding that comes down to the state, to the university, and then there's a lot of partnership between the county and your, um, your state's university. So the, the idea was now we've, you're employed through a mix of government agency as well as the land-grant school, and let's take what you know because you are well-educated and you are doing work with the university, and let's take that out into the field. That was the idea, right? That's correct, and, and the, the important part is to actually work with those individual farmers and understand how it would apply to their farm. It, it wasn't just sending out information. We could do that. Yeah, you could just take a pamphlet to them. Exactly. But now you exactly. went out there and said, you have this type of soil, and what we've discovered through our trials back in Lansing, uh, East Lansing, as it were, that uh, your type of soil is going to need to be this way, uh, this kind of treatment, whatever, and, and we're learning this about apples and whatever, whatever. Okay, that was 105 years ago. Worked well for a long long time when i was a kid i can name every county agent we've had i think uh, here in huntington county indiana um they they are an outreach they are a resource but i got the internet now i got i got the internet do i need you henry it's a very large challenge actually and especially for those folks who aren't very aware of what we do the the unbiased the non-biased i should say research-based information we provide uh, when you go online and do a search for any subject 
uh, you're going to get God knows what coming coming to you. And a lot of that information is not necessarily factual. Uh, it doesn't necessarily help you. Some of it can be dangerous, actually. And so, you wait know, a minute, wait a minute. You mean because I think I posted this on social media once that I said uh, I think that it was a great little meme. I said your Google search doesn't equate to my agricultural education from right. a top 20 uh, agricultural school. Yeah. You're saying that, wait a minute, if I just Google why GMOs are killing me, uh, that's not going to be factual? Uh, well, the, yes, I, exactly right. So let me give an example of a practical application. So goat, a goat farmer uh, goes online and has uh, pink eye. The goat has pink eye. So they go online, how do I treat pink eye in my goat? So they, the, probably the first hit that comes up is going to be from a, a goat website somebody that farms and uh doesn't necessarily have a history of agricultural education and they're re- and certainly not a veterinarian and they're recommending to squirt uh la uh, liquamycin la 200 into yeah the goat's eyeball yeah and you're going to say that's the worst thing you can do because absolutely it can certainly cause a goat to go blind yeah and you're not a veterinarian but you have seen clinical trials and you've been on research farms where you've actually said here's what we're going to do today we're going to show you how to treat these 17 goat maladies right exactly first thing i'm going to do when i get the la 200 out is i'm going to read the label to the producers who are there because that's what you're supposed to do is follow the labor. No, nowhere on the label does it say squirt it, in the, eye. squirt it in the eye of the goat. It says to inject it. Okay, continue with that. Paula, you're down there in, in rural Georgia, and uh, you're not from there. Did you have a hard time being a lady that came in from upstate New York to the south and a female in the business of agriculture, being straight here? Uh, absolutely, in, in some senses. Um, you know, I, I'm from upstate, grew up... North Poughkeepsie and worked in Saratoga area right below the Adirondack Mountains and big dairy country. So I, I lived in a county that had more dairy farms than Georgia could even think about. But the misconception was I was from New York City. And, right. and then actually, I'm um, pretty sure I'm the first female county ag agent in, in my specific county. Um, but it, it's it's growing and changing. Um, there's a lot more female county agents in Georgia. I came from New York that you walked in the room and there was 50-50 men and women. It was just um, more more common for whatever reason for many years. So, but it's it's growing and changing. Uh, agriculture to me, no matter if you're in the northeast or in the south, all the issues and and things that go on are, are pretty much the same. What I usually tell folks, it's a little more hot um, and humid in Georgia compared to where I lived most of my life. And, and that brings different diseases and in, insects and issues that I've had to learn about. But um, problems or issues that we have in Georgia, you know, are very, very common, you know, across the state, no matter yeah, where there's gonna you're be a, There's going to be a few different bugs. There's going to be a few different things, you know, because there's not a freeze, hard freeze like there would be coming in December, whatever, those sorts of things. Uh, okay. So I asked the question, to, and Henry took it, about the Internet. Tell me about something that you've hit. Tell me, uh, Paula, you've been out there, and then you show up on site, and then they say, yeah, well, I already, fi- I already figured this out because I went online. Yeah, we, we definitely do get that a lot. Um, the, the nice thing, though, is all of our universities are online. So you could actually, if you want to Google about goats, um, you, um, you could go to many and you put in, I usually like to put in goats and then cooperative extension. That's a yeah. good search engine. Yeah. And then the different university information will pop up. So you can actually use the Internet and get good information, but we really encourage you to go to a cooperative extension website. That's something that I was going to actually add. While I think it's fantastic that what Henry's illustration that uh, 
that, you know, <laughs> they goes out there and they're just squirting LA 200 that they bought at the farm store into the goat's eye. And you're going to say, well, here's actually why that's not what you should do. Uh, when I troubleshoot, uh, let's say I want to have some apples out here. I went to Michigan state because I know that's an apple state or Washington state because I know that is an apple state. Michigan state would have been my first choice because I'm nearer to the geography of Michigan. Yes. And I figured they would have a better read on something that I would see here. Uh, all right. So you got that going on. Now we're going to get to the nitty gritty. Okay. You talked about goats. You can talk about apples, large scale agriculture. And I pointed this out when I was at your conference, I'm from Indiana, which is a corn and soybean state. Michigan's the nearest uh, example. And we'll let Stan take this one. I farm 5,000 acres, which I don't. Let's just say I'm the guy down the road. I farm 5,000 acres of corn and soybeans. Three different agronomists from three different seed companies call on me. The person that I actually buy all my herbicide comes from, uh, they come out here with an agronomist. I've got two crop consultants that desperately want to charge me $17 an acre to be their full-blown agronomist on staff or on retainer. Do I need you? Yes. Um, you know, the needs of certainly the needs have changed and what you're asking for extension certainly should change over the years. You know, when I started with MSU, we were doing dairy rations for a lot of farms, you know, and so we'd go out there and formulate your ration for you. And, and, uh, you know, and, and I still will do that on occasion with the farm, but I'm always have the nutritionist right there with me from the company. Yeah. No, that's so the thing to, to the listener, by the way, that's not because you're a dairy guy and I'm a yeah. dairy guy. So they're saying, wait a minute, what's he even talking about? Let's, yeah. just, let's just say the person listening right now is a cranberry producer in yeah. the Cape of Massachusetts or sure. a cotton grower in Lubbock, Texas. They're saying, wait a minute, I'm not sure I get that. Okay. Tell me about rations because there was a time that you could milk cows. You knew how to milk cows. You were good at milking cows. And you did it just like your father right. and grandfather did. And you went out there in the 1970s, even 1980s, mm-hmm. and said, yeah, you're feeding them shit. Yeah. <laughs> you need to yeah. give them better feed. And they said, what? And you said, well, you got total digestible nutrients, things like TDN yeah. Yeah. and uh, all those sort of things that are like, what? So explain yep. on that just for a second. Yeah. I mean, we were finding out things about feed as far as how digestible they were, what the quality of the feed was, how much protein was in that feed, how much energy. And at the same time we were basically saying to producers you know cows are not that smart at picking which feed they should be eating in what quantities you know it's like putting ice cream in front of them and a in a stock of broccoli and in front of you and saying okay which one are you going to go after are you going to eat those in the quantities that you want and so or that you need and so total mixed rations tmrs came into vogue and and we continue to use those today and it basically puts in front of the cow exactly what they need so we were going out there two producers with is saying okay i can i can help you send that feed off for analysis we'll get that back we'll figure out exactly what that diet is going to look like for those cows yeah now that's the other thing to make sure that our listeners understand you know we're talking about county agents they they really were expert generalists is that Mm -hmm. the right word they were expert generalists to have your job you have to have a master's degree so you've got an ag degree with a master's degree so there's there's no question you guys are well educated when i said we don't need you what i meant was there's somebody that every day all they do is look at dairy rations that's right all they do every day of their life is look at dairy rations you look at derivations and have a better working knowledge than certainly 99% of the even the business of agriculture. But that 1% that every day just breaks out derivations is still going to be expert to you. That's right. And so we'll work alongside of those and, and we'll work 
in understanding that farm, you know, and what other things, what other factors might be affecting their decisions on the farm. So for instance, on your large dairy farm now, maybe I'm not doing the ration with them, but I understand the, their business. I work with them on their books. Um, we do an analysis every year on their financial situation. And so I can say, yeah, uh, nutritionists, they could spend an extra dollar um, to put that in, but what's the economic benefit of that? And let's look at that and see if this actually makes sense for this particular producer to do that. Henry, is there also a is there also a, an impartiality that you can sell on and say, you know what, I get it that you got you can make a phone call and get the best dairy nutritionist in the in the southeast to come here, or the best peanut uh, consultant in the entire five state region to come here, and they're going to know more about peanuts than I do. But I'm going to bring you a level of impartiality, and I'm still the resource uh, to the university. Is that kind of what you do? Absolutely. So we don't we don't necessarily stick with brands. Uh, we we are we are impartial from that standpoint. Yeah, there are lots of companies out there that have specific products that we actually may recommend, but we don't necessarily recommend them over another company's product. Uh, we would list all of them if necessary that would work. So in the case of uh, <clears throat> in the case of, of the large farmer. Yeah, he may not call me right off the bat. He may call a, a seed company or a chemical company rep and say, hey, I'm having this problem. Where I'm from in, in Talladega County, they usually call us as well because I'm not the crop expert. I'm an animal science person, forage crop person, but I have crop people as well that work with me. So they know I can call the crop specialists and get them in the same day. They want them in the field to get that feedback from the university to make sure to make sure that the university side is covered to make sure they're not getting a bunch of bs yeah and that's the other part is that it's a level of impartiality but also it's the old thing if you went to a doctor and he said you know what you've got conjunctivitis in your foot and you'd say well i think that that means pink eye i'm not sure that's possible i'm gonna get a second opinion <laughs> yeah. so uh it's it's a second opinion kind of an idea Exactly. And, and, and the agronomists that work for those chemical companies and the, uh, the seed companies are really good. And as a matter of fact, a lot of them were trained through extension. They actually work with us and those, those companies are, are, are hiring them out from extension. Um, so they're, they're good at what they do. But the farmers, most cases where I live, they will still have the extension agent there as well. All right. Going around the table, Paula, tell me about a typical day or week, a typical day or week. For you. So for me, you are mentioning about the generalist. Um, in Carroll County, Georgia, I'm actually kind of a generalist as an agricultural agent. I may have a homeowner call me about you know their lawn problem or something in their garden. I have a lot of beef and poultry producers, so I concentrate on putting a lot of uh, uh, livestock-related programs. Like next week when I get back, we're doing a day-long uh, beef management tour and, and taking a, a busload of farmers to about four different farms so they can see different... Uh, practices going on and learn from other farms. Um, I'll have a farmer call me and say, hey, can you come out and take a hay sample because I want to enter it in the hay contest that's coming up next month. Or um, what's this weed in my pasture? And so many times I can get out my resources. I'll go on the internet and go to the University of Georgia or another extensions website to help me answer it. But if I can't in Georgia and much like um, other states like Alabama and Michigan, we have specialists that really specialize. Um, so my forage specialist, Dr. Dennis Hancock, I love him to death. He's got fantastic resources, very reachable. And I can say, hey, you know, I've got this question about hay. I need to get back to a producer and he'll give me an answer. And then I can share it. Um, and, and, and so we 
we have a lot of wonderful research going on. And kind of going back to what you're asking, uh, Henry, is the other thing we bring is is that researcher at the university, not us, because we're in the county. Or sometimes we do do some research of our own, but we have our specialists doing the research, helping answer some of the questions. Like, for instance, you know, a new changing thing now is hemp for a lot of these states. And Georgia's a little behind the eight ball. And, and just this year, we finally, our specialists got some plantings done because we're we're going to be learning about you know growing hemp in Georgia, which is which is unknown to us. So hopefully in the next year or so we'll be able to share that kind she of information. Just, she, she just jumped. She's jumped ahead. She didn't even see my outline. But one I of the things not. I was going to bring up was I, I mean everybody has to adjust. It's my assertion, and you guys tell me what you think. We all went to these large land grant schools, and we're big proponents of grant land grant schools. Everybody sitting at this table, but the university system has to change. Uh, it's it's way expensive. Uh, there's never a recession in an Auburn or a West Lafayette or an East Lansing or a wherever Kenora is. I'm sure because there's so much money that comes in there. Um, that it's, it's expensive. It's cost prohibitive. And also, other than the technology, the actual act of going there and doing stuff hasn't really evolved with the rest of the economy. I think that your role will change. And I think the university's uh approach is going to change your thoughts let's go back to mr henry now let's go back to stan i liked hearing from him you know he's he's one of those michigan guys he's hard to hate <laughs> thanks i Damian. could try yeah you can try i'll try to make it easier on you um so if you were an ohio state guy it'd be easy let's yeah, just put it that way yeah i think yeah. we can all agree on that right? i think we can all agree on that go ahead. yeah certainly our our role is changing um to a certain degree i mean we we uh you know, we're covering depending on the the type of state that you're in, or the or the I shouldn't say the type of state, but the the state that you're in. You know, a lot of states are going to that regional educator that's covering multiple areas to to afford a specialty. We know how to retool, just like just like farmers when you've got a new thing. So so I moved from a, being a dairy person to now doing human resource management, employee development. Which, of course, makes sense because yeah. in large-scale modern dairy now, there's a lot of employees because That's right. it's one of the industries that we couldn't just automate. You know, we can get a we can get a 40-foot draper head and get more acres done with the combine, but you still have to have a lot of hands feeding calves, et cetera, et cetera. So you exactly. moved into more now uh, becoming an employee and HR type of advisor. Exactly. And I'm doing that across not just cattle, dairy cows, but also fruits and vegetables where we use a lot of labor. And as you're well. saying, here's what, here's what the laws are. Here's when you do a training sessions, presumably. Yeah, I do, I do talk. I do a couple of bulletins on laws and proper hiring procedures, but it's also about managing employees. Mm -hmm. And that's something that farmers, you know, haven't had to deal with in the past. They didn't get into the business of farming to manage employees. And no, all and of it's, sudden, it's hard for everybody. Yeah, so. now now they're there. And even in, even the, the young people that are going back to college, it may not be a required course in probably most universities uh, to have a HR course. Should it be? I believe it should be. So and I we think, talk about the role of universities changing and your role changing. The colleges need to say, yeah, I mean, for instance, they made me take a computer programming class even right. in 1991. Well, hell, I'm not going to program a exactly. computer. Even in 1991, I wasn't. That class could be replaced with how to manage employees. 
Absolutely. That would be great. All right, Henry. Uh, Paula talked about it, specialty crops. Uh, I see this as, you know, and I talked about it at the presentation for you. When I say we're going to be growing less corn and more other stuff, the ag people in my neighborhood just flip out because, oh, that's crazy. How would you ever say that? When you stand up and say less corn in Indiana, that's like standing in church and screaming, there's no God. Okay. <clears throat> I believe that some of these acres are going to become something else. <clears throat> Kernza, kale, quinoa. Those are just three of them. Hemp. I can go on and on and on. Grain sorghum has a lot of uh, love among the foodies now because it's uh, drought tolerant. Um, what do you see the future for somebody like you that can say, you know what? Some of these acres, they're not really that great of soybean acres. They should be growing fill in the blank. Do you see that being a role that you fill? To some degree, yes. I, I think what you're saying is probably true to some degree as well. Uh, we're, we're a global economy now in agriculture. And so everything global affects what's what's planted here we get a big surplus of corn there's less corn planted get a surplus of soybeans there's less soybeans planted uh cotton prices go up real high everybody switches to cotton and so it, it's all based on markets so without a doubt there's some land that's that's marginal doesn't grow good corn and and for the most part we've discovered previously what that land is and we already know and a lot of that corn isn't a lot of that land is not in corn today uh, maybe in the Midwest it's different than from where I live in Alabama. We don't grow the volume of corn you do up here. We've, we don't see the acres of corn when you drive down the sure. highway that we're seeing sure. here driving around. Um, but there's still going to be a need for specialty crops or there's going to be no because of the it. richer consumer, because of the richer consumer and the changing amount of our ability to produce large commodity. Do you see there being a, a crop that all of a sudden is like, hell, we never even would have thought we'd have seen this 20 years ago. What do you see? We, we see a lot of that already. And we've seen that through history. I mean, there's, there are specialty crops that come along. Everybody dives in. And now with the Internet, especially because with hemp, everybody's going to plant hemp now. Thank you. And so. Um, when everybody sees it and they think it's the the newest thing it's going to make lots and lots of money everybody wants in even the non-farmer wants in uh if they already have a few acres or they or they, or they go out and buy some farmland and then they're going to get into farming all of a sudden to grow those specialty crops okay now that even brings me up to the last point one thing where i see a real need for your services and extension mm -hmm. is those people right absolutely there, there is a, only one growth category in farmers according to the nass the national access service there's a growth in the five to 50 acre i yep. want to know where my food comes from i used yep. to go to farmers markets i've made a little bit of money uh my husband and i want to live out here and we're going to grow spotted yep. uh organic free-range uh chickens named bob i we mean whatever that. that thing is so paula yours more th this is since she's from upstate new york where there's more you know birkenstock wearing hippies let's just go with her on this <laughs> that would be over in vermont no. <laughs> okay, that would be over in Vermont. Uh, no offense, Vermont folks. Okay, no, no offense. Give it to me. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I've been in Extension 26 years, and I saw this years and years ago in New York. Of course, of, of it's, people, coming to, it's coming to the rest of the country, and it's finally coming south. And 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 that was that was one interesting thing when I did come south of 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 where things had already happened in the Northeast. So yeah, many of the producer, the wannabe producers that come through my door. I just had a guy last week or so. He's got literally an acre, and he wants to grow chickens and pigs. And you know, so we have those conversations about, do you want this to be your full-time job? You know, what, what kind of scale? And we try, I try to talk about scale and, and how, how many acres you would need and, and 
right. what you need to actually have a farming agricultural business. But I feel it's important that, you know, even if they don't get into agriculture with those new folks that come in, I'm doing them a service of giving them the good proper information so they can make a good edu- educated decision of should they get into farming or not. And if they don't, that's okay. But there's many of those small scale that um, want to do that niche marketing, go to the farmer's market in all sorts of different types of cop crops. Okay, will they, okay, let's go over to Stan. He's got, he's, he's the money and the HR guy. Okay, they, they are going to be, I think, a new demand for you because there's this, I want to be close to my food, all that. Now, this may wane, but I think this is going to be with us for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the millennial generation, post-millennials are going to, the, the, the group of them that wants to do it, there's going to be a bunch that never get off their handheld device, but the other ones, uh, can you help them? Absolutely. And, and actually, I just wrote an article about this not too long for our lo- too long ago for our local paper and and what we kind of go through as extension agents when somebody calls and with a very simple question of, oh, I just inherited 200 acres. What do I do with it? And so I talked to them about what their dream is. You know, you should start there. What do you really want to do? Uh, but we eventually end up in marketing as one of the other things that I ask a lot about is what do you what are you thinking you're going to do? So you're not the 10 acre sweet corn producer calling me and saying, okay, I've got the corn. Now, yeah, I've got, what do, I've got, what do I, got, I do with it? I got 300 bushel of sweet corn every other day coming, uh, coming, coming ripe. Now what? I'm like, well, you better find someone to buy it. Yeah. Right? So trying to have some of those conversations up front with them and actually putting together a plan, you know, what's, what's your plan going to look like? I think we need those farms. Frankly, when you start talking about some of the new crops, uh, that are coming out, you know, you're not going to see a 2000, acre farm all of a sudden switch to no, a brand I, I, new crop and the small farms are able to do that test the markets figure out if it's going to work or not well when you look at what the foodie the foodie demand has done the foodie demand has created a supply when you are reading an article when i read an article and i pick up a variety of sources when i'm traveling around the country and they talk about a chef in charlotte that only wants to serve pasture-raised berkshire hogs that uh, are of this size and of this the, the huge hog farmers that down the road from me in Indiana don't they don't want to fool with that for one second so there's got to be somebody with their 25 acres that'll have their 40 Berkshire pasture raised pigs to supply that shift absolutely and if it takes off from there then they'll think about it that's right but for that that initial market we need those small producers and then there'll, be, and then there'll be the next one alright we're going to wrap it up because we try not to wear out our guests Henry last thoughts <laughs> from you did you have a good time talking to me today oh absolutely any, any last thoughts on this well, I think Stan had a good point that these small farms that we're seeing pop around, yeah, we, we're experts in agriculture, and, and we have the tools to teach them everything they need to know about being successful on their small farm. Uh, whether they're retired from the uh, tele, uh, let's say, uh, technology industry out of Atlanta or inherited land in Alabama, and they grew up in Michigan, and they come down and they want to know what to do with the land, we can help guide them on what will work on that land. Uh, and then once they make a decision, help them help them follow through and then be as profitable as possible. Um, so there's always a place for that. The large farms, there's always a place for them as well because we've got the expertise at the university. They're, they develop the research um, on the on the on the soil types within the state, within the environment that's there. So we we develop the research, bring that information back out to help those large farmers along just the same. So either way, extension is going to be here a long time. We may not look the same. We don't look the same today we did 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I started. Certainly 100 and something years ago, we don't look the same. Uh, budgets are tighter. We're shrinking in workforce across the country. We're specializing. We're, we're spreading our, our, our efforts out across a larger geographic region uh, to reach specific farmers. 
And so we're going to continue to evolve that way. Uh, we'll never get back to the, the old-time county agent that did, ever, that did everything in the county. But, uh, but we're going to be here. That's a good way to wrap it up. Paula, by the way, he did such a good job of summing up. What do you got? Any last thought? I don't know. They, these are two great guys here. Of course, I'm married to one of them, and they speak very well. But I just encourage folks listening that wherever you are across the country to contact your local extension office, and um, and we're, we're here to help. And if we can't, we, we know where the resources are to help you out. Her name's Paula Burke. His name was Henry Duro. And my Michigan friend, his name's Stan Moore. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture.